Uh, what I want to do today is I'm not so much going to argue for anything, okay? I mean, I, I, there'll be some arguing, but more or less what I'm going to do is just try to explain to you what philosophers in the tradition that I see myself as a part of, the sort of a broadly Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, which you know has soft edges I mean, in terms of what is or is not in that tradition, broadly what we mean when we talk about a soul, okay, what we mean by that. And the hope is that you'll see once you understand what we mean by a soul, there is no real possible conflict between that and the results of modern neurosciences, okay? I think, you know, if I can make my, you know, sort of, I get one a day, like one unverified sociological generalization, okay? Uh, I suspect most of you are walking around with the conception of a soul that in fact does pick a fight with the neurosciences, okay? And I guess I want to tempt you to think about it differently, right? To think about it in the way that the tradition I occupy thinks about it. Uh, so you don't have to pick that fight. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad you're a biologist. So let me, uh, let me read a paragraph to you. This is from Father Herbert McCabe, uh, a relatively recently late Dominican priest. Uh, he claims the following. He says, Christians are sometimes thought to believe that people have souls rather in the way that others believe in Father Christmas or fairies at the bottom of the garden. I mean, souls are thought to be extra entities besides what are recognized by other, perhaps more skeptical and tough-minded people. We all know about bodies, but Christians are thought to tell us that, besides the visible bodies that we can scientifically examine, there are other invisible things called souls, more or less loosely attached to those bodies. Okay, end quote. So, McCabe, this is not McCabe's view at all. Right. And, and in fact, in, in the article he's writing, that he's trying to, to do something more like what I'm going to do tonight. But he thinks that most of us have this view of the soul kind of like a garden fairy. Okay? It's, it's, you know, in the popular imagination, it's this thing that kind of looks like you can sort of see through it. Right? Um, and the idea is, is we mostly think of the soul as this non-physical entity in, in, in fancy philosopher taught a substance. Okay, this non-physical substance. And what this non-physical substance is, is that you've got certain physical properties. Uh, you have a certain mass, right? You have a certain volume, you have a position, okay? All the kinds of properties we can, that we can study you just like any other physical object in the universe. But then on the other hand, you've got these non-physical properties or these psychological properties. Your thoughts, your feelings, your acts of will, etc., etc. And the idea is, well, the, there's a physical thing that has the physical properties and it's a thing in the same sense that the chair you're sitting on is a thing, right? Or, you know, the pen you're holding is a thing or a tree outside is a thing. It's not a property of something else. It's, it's something that has properties. But then if there's a physical thing that has your physical properties and you have these non-physical attributes, these acts of will and thoughts and feelings then there must be a non-physical thing, a non-physical substance that has those properties. Okay. And so then the idea is there's a body, right, in your chair right now, and it's, it's physical, just like any other physical object in the universe. And we can study it with the natural sciences and know pretty much what there is to know about it with the natural sciences. But then there's this other thing, this garden fairy, right? 
this non-physical substance that has your psychological attributes or your non-physical attributes. So on the, on the kind of the more common view, at least among Christians, is that there really are, in a sense, two things, two substances in your chair right now. Now, one's there in a very ambiguous sense, in whatever sense a non-physical thing has a place. I don't want to do that, right? Uh, but your body's there, and there's this other thing, your soul, that's there. Okay. And on this, on this very typical view, you know, um, and it's not, it, you know, certainly it, it, we associate it today with, with modern philosophers like Rene Descartes, but, you know, on some readings of Plato, it's there in Plato way back in the ancient world. It's been around, right? Um, but on this view, your relationship, right, you as a soul, until we think of you, you're, you're the soul and the body is the thing you're associated with, is external. You have this external relationship to your body. And what I mean by that is your relationship to your body is the same sort of relationship that you might have with the chair you're sitting on. Right? They're two distinct separate things, and they kind of push and pull on each other externally. They have causal relationships, but that's it. Okay. In the way that I'm externally related to this paper, I can move it, right? And you know, maybe it could cause things to happen to me, it could cause me a paper cut or some <coughs> such. Well, the, the idea is the same thing with the soul. It's, it's this thing that's external to the body, and the body's external to the soul, and they can exchange things, right? There can be a causal relationship between them. Okay. Um, you know, we, we call that dualism or substance dualism is probably the best word for it. Okay. If I had to bet, I would say, you know, if you, if you surveyed most Christians, they would, it would not be hard to get them to admit to thinking about souls that way. Okay. Now, um, what do I mean by neuroscience? And why do I think that this view of the soul is going to get you into trouble with neuroscience? So what do neurosciences do? Well, I mean, a lot of things. And in a very simplified oversimplified way, I'll put it as follows. Uh, basically what the neurosciences are doing, or, or what, what they're doing that's relevant to what we're going to talk about, is they're discovering right, causes for psychological phenomena, conscious events, in the central nervous system. Okay. Whether, whether they look at you know, what, what we can't do when we have certain pathologies in our nervous system or when we have certain damages to our nervous system, and then there's an absence of certain psychological attributes then, right? Or what we can observe using electromagnetic imaging and direct stimulation about literally what are causes in the nervous system for our psychological attributes, okay? For our conscious states. Um, you know, and there's more to it than that. I mean, we, we can add in evolutionary stories as to why those, those causes are there, et cetera, et cetera. But the, but the thing that's important for us is that the direction that neuroscience has gone and, and of course, like the results in the in the popular imagination of all this have been greatly overstated I think but the overall direction is that we're not discovering any gaps here right it the more we look the more we're finding a very very nice complete account of what's going on psychologically in a sense in terms of what's going on neurophysiologically. And what I mean by that is we're not finding psychological states for which there isn't a pretty good neurophysiological explanation, or at least a cause, right, 
of those psychological states. Okay. Um, the, the degree to which the, the correlations have been shown, I think it's been overstated, but the direction is don't bet that we're going to find something in our consciousness, right, that we will not find something going on, right, that's correlated with it or it's a ground for it in the central nervous system. Okay, does that make sense? All right. Um, now, the, the thing too is remember is that's not really a surprise to anyone. I mean, it's not as if in the ancient world they didn't realize that if, you know, if Smitty got a bump in the head, he didn't think as well afterwards, right? Uh, that's going to be important for what some of the things I'm going to do here. But the level of sophistication that we're able to do now, right, uh, and, and, and the degree, to, like the, the level of detail that we're able to find in terms of the relationship between what's going on in us consciously, right, and what's going on in us neurophysiologically is impressive, right? So why is that a problem for the garden theory view of the soul? Well, the problem is it's just not clear what that work is left to be done by an immaterial thing, right? If we know there are physical causes, right, and we can, we can discover them empirically for everything that's going on in us consciously, it doesn't seem like there's much good reason to think that there's anything like a non-physical substance that's the seed of consciousness, or that is, you know, what is the actual cause of these phenomena. You see my point here, okay? Um, so at best, it seems like the garden fairy would be what we call epiphenomenal. Yeah, maybe there's such a thing, but it doesn't explain anything. It does no work, right? So then why would you think there is such a thing? Um, and even though we don't know everything about this yet, it just seems highly unlikely that we're going to discover, oh, there's the gap. There's the thing we can't explain. Right? And that must be what the soul's doing. Right? That kind of reasoning, has, we've always lost on that. Okay. So far. All right, so the main worry here for me is if you think about the soul in that dualistic way, what you're going to have is something that's at best epiphenomenal, right? And I think you're just going to run out of reasons for thinking that there is such a thing. Okay. I'm not saying <clears throat> there aren't hard problems in the philosophy of mind. I'm not saying that uh, the neurosciences wrap human psychology up for us in a nice, neat little box with a bow on it, right? You know, um, what exactly... Uh, you know, sodium and potassium changing positions over membranes of fat, right? That's ultimately what neurological events are. What that has to do with my thought about Paris is a great mystery, okay? <laughs> All right? And, and, you know, whether we'll, that's something that we can solve is an interesting question. I'm going to talk more about that maybe a little later. But we do know this. My thinking about Paris, right, is something caused by sodium and potassium moving across membranes of fat. And I don't need an immaterial substance to make sense of the fact that I'm doing that. Okay. So my view and what I want to show you today is a conception of the soul right, that does not presuppose anything like the garden fairy. Okay. I think that conception of the soul is perfectly consistent with anything a Christian wants out of the kind of the soul. And in fact, it's the, con the conception of the soul that is probably original to the Christian understanding. It's the older view. All right. 
So, uh, one bit of logic. I'm going to cringe when I say that. But. So, let's suppose uh, Kelly is showing me around campus and he shows me the academic buildings, shows me the football stadium, of course, right? Shows, shows me the dormitories, the cafeterias, the libraries, the laboratories, all this stuff. And at the end of it, I say, you know, Kelly, that was great, but you never showed me the university. Where's the university? Okay. Uh, you showed me buildings, right, but you never showed me the university. Uh, I think Kelly would, would probably say that, you know, Jim's gone a little soft, right? There's something wrong here. I, I did show you the university, okay? And I've, I've made some kind of mistake here, all right? And <clears throat> what philosophers call that, they call it a category mistake. And what a category mistake is, is when someone thinks about an entity as belonging to one logical category when really it belongs to another logical category. And let me, let me elaborate that. So if I ask Kelly after he shows me the, the playing fields and, the, build, and the, the academic buildings and laboratories and the dormitories and all, all the stuff that make a university, and I ask him where the university is, it seems like what's happening there is I'm thinking about the university as if it's a building among the buildings. Okay, I'm thinking of the university as the same kind of thing as the, as the buildings that compose it. When in fact, the University of South Carolina is not a building, it's a relationship among buildings, right? And people, right? And you know, other things. Do you see that? So to ask to see the university as something that we could line up alongside the students, the professors, the buildings, the playing fields, all that stuff, is to fail to understand the kind of thing, the logical category we're talking about here. We're not talking about a discrete entity like a human being or a building, we're talking about a relationship that obtains among those kinds of entities. Do you see the point there? Okay. Is that to say that the University of South Carolina is not real? No, it's perfectly real, right? You're probably borrowing tens of thousands of dollars for access to it. I hope it's real, right? Okay. Uh, but it's not the same kind of thing as something like this chair. It's not the same kind of thing as something like this building. It's not the same kind of thing as something like each one of you. Okay? It's not a substance. It's a relationship among substances. Okay. Do you see that? All right. The, much of what's gone into the garden fairy view of the soul is a category mistake. It's not the same category mistake, but it's a category mistake. It's talking about the soul as if it's in one category, one logical category, when really it's a different kind of thing. It's in a different logical category, okay? That's not to say there's no such thing as a soul. It's to say it's a different kind of thing from the way we've kind of been habituated to talk about it, okay? So what is it then? Um, just take this table here as our example, okay? Um, First kind of crazy thing I'm going to say is I don't think this table is identical to the parts that compose it. Okay. Now by identical I mean the very same thing. One and the same entity. Okay. Uh, in the way that Jim Madden is identical to Jim Madden. Okay. Uh, why is that? Well, first of all, 
we could take this table and you know we could smash it up. We could we could run it. Suppose that it was all wood. Okay, we could run it through a wood chipper, right? We would still have the parts, but we wouldn't have a table anymore. Do, do you see that? Okay, so it's clear that the parts could exist when the table doesn't. All right. Moreover, right? We we could you know let's just say we took one screw out of that. And replace it with another one. And then another day, we take another screw out and replace another one. And then slowly over time, we incrementally replaced all the parts of the table. Okay. We probably would, would not congratulate ourselves on our new table. Right? We'd say it's the same table, right? though now it has different parts. Because the process was incremental. Right? So there, you could have the table existing even when the parts don't exist. Okay. So the table isn't the very same thing as the parts. Okay, can you have a table without any table parts? No, right? It'll always be composed by some set of parts or other, but it isn't just the parts. Okay. Uh, in, in another way, the thing about it too is, oh, we'll come back. So, so what the table is is going to be parts plus something else. There's got to be something else, some other kind of entity that determines it as a table in addition to just the parts that compose it. Okay. Now, in that case, it's probably just some kind of structural relationship. Right? It's an arrangement of the parts. If you get the parts arranged properly, you get a table. Right? If you throw them through a wood chipper, right, such that uh, you know, they're not arranged in a certain way, you don't have a table anymore, okay? Likewise, if we take new parts and we introduce them into it in the right structural arrangement, you don't lose the table, you keep the table, okay? So the idea here is the parts are potential to be a table. They can be a table, but they don't have to be. What actually makes them a table, right, is an arrangement. You see that. So I would say there's two kinds of things that go into making a table. There's the parts, and they're going to have to, there's going to be certain properties the parts will have to have, right? If they, if they, you know, are in some way, you know, stiff enough, right, then that wouldn't make for much of a table, would it? Okay. Uh, if they're too heavy or too big or something like that, there's going to be limits on the kind of parts that can do it. But the parts have to have the potential to compose a table, but then they also have to have an arrangement. Okay. So in the broadest sense, right, what Aristotelians, followers of Aristotle say, is that part is a that table is a composition. It's a composition of the parts, which Aristotle calls the matter, okay, and the form, which is whatever you need in addition to the matter to make him make it a table. Does that make sense? Now, is the form a component of the table in the same way like the screw is a component, component of the table? No, category mistake. It's not a building among the buildings. What is it? It's a relationship among the parts of the table. Does that make sense? 
All right, now, the interesting thing, too, is um, if we were going to count the things in this room, and, you know, I counted, you know, one, two, three, four, for all the chair, and I got to the table, and I counted the table, and then I counted the surface of the table, and the legs of the table, and the screws of the table, we would all find that a little odd, right? Okay, because we think of the table not as a conglomeration of things, we think of it as a single unit, okay? Why? Well, because it has that form. It has that structure. That structure makes it such that it <coughs> is a single thing, okay? So what is the matter, right? Not what's the matter, like what's your problem? Like what is the matter of a thing? Okay, I do it every time. <laughs> I think they think I'm talking about like emotional stuff. <laughs> what is the matter, right? Uh, it's whatever parts would be necessary to have that kind of thing. What is the form, okay? It's whatever we need in addition to those parts actually to have that sort of thing, okay? To make it one thing of that kind, okay? And now, if you think of it, um, not just any structure will do, right? We could arrange these parts in all sorts of structures. We could make a ladder, right? Okay, we could, you know, I don't know. We do all sorts of things with these parts, okay? We could grind them up and make a chair. We could make a bed, all these things, okay? What makes it a table, like what makes that structure a table structure is the best we could probably do with that would be in terms of some kind of purpose or function, right? If it can't support a bottle, we'd probably say it's, it's not a table, or it's a real failure as a table, okay? You know, so I'm, like the table doesn't have to have a square or a rectangular top, but it's gotta have some surface such that it can support things. You see that? So this is gonna be important as we go on. The, the form of a thing is, in a, is importantly related to the function of the thing, what it does. So to have the form of table is to be arranged, have parts arranged in a way, have matter arranged in a way that it can do the characteristic activity of a table. Not that the table really acts on its own, right? The way I like to put it, it has to, to have the form is to be able. It's to, to actually be able to do the function. This has the form of a table because it can actually, right now, without being changed, it can do the work. Do you follow me? And there's, there's, a, there's an interesting relationship, too, between these parts and, and the form. But we'd all be pretty happy to say, yeah, that's a table leg, right? Okay. But it's only a table leg because of its relationship to the form, right? It's interesting that the whole, the form, defines the parts in the way. Right? If I asked you, Go find me the table leg in this room, right? You'd only be able to do it because you understand the form and the function of table. Okay. All right. Now, it's important to note, though, that, you know, ultimately, all the table is is just, you know, it, it's slowly deteriorating wood, okay? It doesn't really do anything that wood doesn't do, okay? Uh, and, and so for this reason, Aristotelians called the form of table an accidental form. 
it's not as if we really made something new when we made the table, right? We just made wood do something new. Do you see the point there? Okay. Um, and that's true of artifacts like tables, right? They're sort of second grade. They're not like second grade in school. They're not as good as other things. Okay. Low grade. They're low grade things. Why? Because really, they, nothing really new comes into the world when you make a table. You just gave wood a new accident. Um, but you know, there's, we still treat them as unities and things like that because you know, we can use them to do things. All right. So let me take a more interesting example, and one that's going to closer to I think what we're interested in here. Let's take a cat. Uh, let's say we have a cat. Let's say our cat's name is Fluffy. Okay. Is Fluffy identical to his physical parts? I would argue he is not. Okay. Why not? I mean, trigger warning for cat lovers, right? <laughs> if if Fluffy hits the wood chipper, right? <laughs> I've not done it. It's not, it's not an experiment I've run, okay? But the wood chipper is part preserving, right? I mean, you'd have all of Fluffy's parts on the far side of the wood chipper, but you wouldn't have a cat. Did you see that? So could the parts exist without the cat existing? Yes, right? Moreover, you know, Fluffy eats his, eats his tuna or whatever, right? And he takes in new parts, and you know he does the cat digestion elimination thing, and leaves parts behind. So he's changing parts over. So the parts he has now, he's not going to have really any of those. Ultimately, you know, ten years from now, if he makes it that long, right? So Fluffy is not identical to his parts. Now, if you have Fluffy, you got to have what? You got to have material parts. But he's not just those parts. He's going to be the part, just like the table. He's going to be the parts plus something else. He's matter and he's form. In the sense that Aristotle makes that distinction. Okay. Now, in a living thing, Aristotelians, following Aristotle, call the form of a living thing a soul. Okay. They call it a soul. All right. Um, so Aristotle and Aquinas after him, and pretty much everybody in the scholastic tradition following them, is perfectly happy to say a cat has a soul. No problem at all. They're perfectly happy to say a cactus has a soul. Okay. Take a cactus, throw it through the wood chipper. Do you have all the parts? Yes, you do. But you don't have what? You don't have a cactus. Right? Does, it, does, the, does the cactus constantly exchange parts with its environment? Yes, it does. So the cactus, just like the table, just like the cat, is not identical to its parts. All right? Is it alive? Yeah. So not only is it a matter of form composition, but we call its form a soul. It's animate, anime, right? Okay. So in that sense, right, Aristotle's happy to say every living thing has a soul. Okay. Because all a soul is in this tradition is whatever it is that makes something a living member of its kind rather than just the parts on the far side of the wood chipper. Okay. You see the point there. All right. Um, and so, you know, just like in the case of the form of the table, what is it to have the form of cat? Well, it's to be able, right, to do what it is that cats do. We would define the soul of cat in terms of the cat's Natural functions. Okay, so the parts of the cat, right, 
after the cat's demise, you know, they don't run and jump and grow and, you know, make me slightly ill. And they don't make other cats. They don't hunt. They don't do all those things. So what's the soul of the cat? It's the actual ability right, to do the cat things. It's the being able of a cat. What's the soul of a cactus? It's the actual ability to do the things that are definitive of being a cactus. Okay. It's the being able of a cactus. Okay. Is the soul of the cat then, is it this special little ghost fairy thing inside the cat? Category mistake, right? That's to think of it in the same way as we think of the parts of the cat. It's not a part of the cat. It's the form of the cat. Right? It's this thing that is the whole of it. It's the unity of it as a thing of that kind. Does that make sense? Right. Important to note in this tradition, right? So souls have nothing to do with consciousness. Nothing. They have nothing to do with psychological properties. Cacti are not conscious in the relevant sense, right? But I'm perfectly happy to say. In the sense I'm using the word, a cactus has a soul. And I think it's the same sense in which I would say you have a soul. Okay? The cat's conscious, right? That's part of the being able of a cat, right? But we don't say, oh, it's conscious, therefore it has a soul. We say, it's a living thing, right? It has a particular ability that defines as living thing. Whatever gives it that ability, that's its soul. Okay. Uh, in a relatively famous passage, Aristotle compares the soul to an organism that has it uh, to the relationship that sight is to an eye. Okay. So to actually be an eye and not just like a decomposing, you know, former set of eye parts, right, is to be able to see. It might not be seen right now, but it's such that it has that ability right now. You could exercise it. Okay. That's what it is to be an eye. She says, yeah, so the form of I, even though you wouldn't say I has a form because it's, it's not a substance on its own, right? The form of the I is the being able to see. It's the power of sight. Or I should say, it's being such that you can exercise that power. What's the soul of the form of a cat, right? It's the being such that you can do the cat thing. You can act as a cat. Interesting thing about this, too, in the same way that the parts of the table are defined by the form of table, okay, you have an even stronger relationship in the parts of an organism as you do uh, in, in, in an artifact. So what I mean here is if rather than fluffy, um, you know, running through the wood chipper, he just gets a little close and he loses his tail, okay, immediately that tail is going to begin to decompose, right? It has no standing on its own, right? It'll immediately start to decompose back to the elements common to everything else, right? Its status as a tail or a part of a cat is entirely dependent on the cat. And even its very existence as a single thing is entirely dependent on the cat to which it belongs. Okay, like, you know, tough cases like transplant notwithstanding. So in an organism, there's a, there's a special kind of dependence that the parts have to the whole, right? It's not just, they're not just dependent in definition, they're dependent in their very being, 
at the level of organs and systems, things like that, they only exist in as much as they are in that system. Okay. All right, so you know, to, to complete the picture, are you identical to your parts? No, you're not, right? Why? Well, you too are subject to the wood chipper, right? Lens coming, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Okay. Uh, you know, someday there'll be, there'll be a pile of human remains. There'll be the exact collection of parts that, that composed you while you were alive. But I'm going to say that pile of remains will not be you, right? It'll be stuff that used to make you up. You too do metabolism, right? You, I hope, right? You eat, right? You eliminate. You're changing parts of the environment all the time, okay? So you are not identical to your parts. So it must be that you, like the table, right. like the cactus, like the cat, are a composite. Composite of matter, right? parts that have the potential to be human, and a soul, right? What's the soul? The soul is the being able, right? right? It's, the, it's, it's having the capacity to do the characteristically human functions. Does that mean the soul is like a little ghost trapped in there somewhere, a garden fairy? Not in the least. Not in the least. Right? Uh, it is, that's a category mistake. It's to think of the soul like you think of your thumb. Right? But the thumb's a part. It's not the whole. What's the soul? It's the whole. Or at least it's, it's present with the whole. Okay. All right. Um, The, the thing that, to note then is on this view, you aren't a soul. You are an organism. You're a kind of animal. Okay. Uh, in the same way that the cat is an organism, it's a kind of animal. Okay. And on this view, you come to be when an organism with the being able of human comes to be. You pass away when an organism, right, that had the being able of being human no longer has it. It's gone. Okay. So your conditions of coming to be and your conditions of demise are biological. They're bodily. Okay. We got you when we got that organism sitting in the chair. We'll lose you when we lose that organism sitting in the chair. Okay. Consciousness has nothing to do with it. D does that make sense? I think this is, this is very important for understanding things when, 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 the, uh, when you read, say, like in, in the Catechism, that uh, the, the soul, the human soul is present from conception forward. Okay. Um, You'll also find in the Catechism the claim that the soul is the form of the human body, okay? The substantial form of the human body. They invoke the Aristotelian language, okay? To say then the human soul is present from conception, that just means it's a human being. It's a human organism. Do, do you see my point? So if anyone said, well, why do you think it's right or wrong or, you know, it's, it's impermissible to kill a human embryo, right? If you reply, well, because the soul is present from conception, I, I think that's a, a, that's there's a real easy way to, to 
to misconstrue what's being said there. We don't, we don't say, we're, what we're saying when we make that claim is just that it, because it's a human being. You see my point there? It's not the presence or the non-presence of a ghost that we're worried about. We're worried about whether or not it's a member of our species. Okay, do you get the point there? And so I could be a materialist and my views about that wouldn't matter one bit because whether I'm a materialist or not, I would still think that's a human organism. And if I think moral rights and that sort of thing follow the human organism, then I would still say those rights are present at that point. All right. Now, that exhausts what I know about ethics. Okay, that's not what I do. I just want you to point to you why this metaphysics is relevant to that. Okay. Do you see the point there? All right. Now, um, I, I think in, in, in some ways I'm hoping you're a little scandalized what I'm saying here, right? Because you know, I've, I've pushed you to think of a human being as a biological entity, right? As an animal, right? The position that I stake out is often called animalism, right? It makes a great t-shirt, okay? But, um, and this kind of pushes you as close to a kind of materialism as you can get without going over the edge. Do you see my point, right? And I think that's entirely healthy, right? So I think in the Christian tradition, uh, we've erred so far on the other side. Right, to think of human beings as souls, right? Souls associated with bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think it's important at this point to, to recover the idea that no, we are in fact not souls, we are organisms, we are a kind of body. Now, on the view that I'm representing, bodies are much more complicated than the standard material story about them. They're not just physical parts. They're physical parts with form, right? They have to be taken as wholes, not just aggregates, okay? All right, we can't reduce them to those parts, not just the parts, okay? But they are physical things, if you see my point, all right? At this point, worries about uh, immortality come up, okay? Because, I mean, think of it. Take Aristotle's example of the eye, okay? If you take the eye and you, and you pull it out of the head and you crush it, there's no sight going on here. The being able of the eye doesn't float off. It's just what? Gone, right? In the same way that if we bulldozed all the buildings at South Carolina, right? And we, you know, fired all the professors, right? Um, and, you know, we expelled all the students and we burnt up all the founding documents and all that, right? Probably there's no such thing as the University of South Carolina anymore. It was a fun trip. It's over, right? Come to Benedict. <laughs> we need the help. Okay. So, um, you see the point, right? Things like forms don't, it's hard to see how they would survive the destruction of the parts that, that they're in composition with. Okay. Now, um, and how immortality of the soul fits into this, I think is complicated. I think we've been trying to square that circle since Aristotle. And I don't claim to have an entirely satisfying story about this. I'll try, okay, all right, but stay tuned. The thing to remember, though, before we get into that, is the last line of the Apostles' Creed does not mention the soul, right? 
it mentions resurrection of body and life everlasting. Okay. So I think the first thing to note is our hope lies in some kind of bodily, bodily resurrection. Now what that is, I mean, you get into like, like St. Paul and you get into like what Christ's resurrected body was like. Uh, you know, it, will it be like this body in any important sense? I don't know, right? I think we've gone through glass darkly here, right? But even our model of immortality is not one of ghostly garden fairy entities. It is in terms of a resurrection, okay? Now, that being said, Aristotle uh, did think the human soul could exist in separation from the body, okay? He doesn't see it as particularly good news, right? Because once again, he's like, well, that won't be me because I'm an organism, I'm an animal. And he, he doesn't quite get how you could ever differentiate my soul from your souls if they were separated from the body because your human being able is the same being able as mine. It's just that mine's in this 179 pounds of meat and yours is in some other quantity of meat. Right. You see the point. Okay. But yeah, Aristotle does think the human soul is in some way separable from the organism that it partly composes. Aquinas thinks this, and he's, and he's happy about it. He has a more developed view of it. Okay. Um, so Aristotle does say, for the most part, if you destroy the organism, the soul is going with it. Right? It's destroyed. But he, he puts an unless clause on there. He puts an unless, unless, unless clause on there. He says, look, if you destroy the organism, you destroy the soul, unless there's a capacity an organism has that just cannot be a capacity of a material thing. That couldn't be the capacity of an organ. Okay. And Aristotle runs through his book on the soul, De Anima, literally on the soul. And he says, you know, plants have souls, but you know, there's nothing, there's, they're, they're special, they're different from non-living things, uh, but there's nothing going on that he doesn't think you could account for in physical terms. Okay. And he gets to Animals like you know our cat, and he says, yeah, they're very interesting. They have capacities that you don't find at the level of plants. Uh, there's something new under the sun there. There's a new substance there. But he doesn't think the cat or any other animal is doing something that uh, you would need a separable soul to account for. Okay, that's important to note because note the cat is conscious, right? The cat does have some psychological attributes. It can feel pains, right? It probably tastes things. Uh, in sense, it has fears and things like that. I mean, I'm not saying in the same sense we do, okay? Um, and that's important to note. So, like, just, just based on the fact of consciousness, neither Aristotle nor Aquinas would think that there's an immortal soul. It's not just the fact that there are psychological entities that they find interesting for this, okay? When Aristotle gets a human being, um, he says, aha, now, this is, this is interesting, because his nice, Aristotle likes a nice, neat, naturalistic story. Um, and he gets the human being, and it's sort of like, oh, man, this doesn't fit very well. Because he thinks the human being has a kind of capacity that defines it as a human being. It's the really distinctive thing about us that he doesn't think you can account for in terms, straightforwardly in terms of a physical process. Okay? And here, it's not our emotions, it's our reasoning. 
Okay, it's it's the fact that uh, we can reason about things and not just be aware of and react to things. Okay, down the centuries, this argument takes many many forms. Right, the longest footnote I have written in my career is an attempt to list right all the places you can find this argument defended. Okay, um, they all come to this 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 basic point about the power of human abstraction, okay? that human beings can arrive at an understanding of universals. Okay? We can have concepts. Right? And so and what we mean here is, for instance, if I can understand the concept, um, I like to use examples of, of laws of logic. Okay? So if I understand a, a, a certain law of logic, just to use an example, what we call modus ponens, right? If P, then Q, P, therefore, someone said, yeah, Q, it's good, it's right, it's a good thing. Okay. Um, and, yeah, that, that's, that's a law of logic, okay? I could have said that if it's raining, the sidewalk is wet. It's raining, therefore, sidewalk is wet, okay? Uh, if my French phonetics were better, I could have said it in French, right? Okay. Or German, or Spanish, or Russian, or Japanese. I could stay on the moon, right? I could stay in a boat with a goat, right? It, it's, modus ponens can take on infinitely many different physical instantiations, and in every case, it's the exact same law of logic. Do you see that? It's identically determinate across infinitely many physical instantiations. Does that make sense? All right. Um, Physical causes have finite effects. The effect of a physical cause occurs at one time and in one place. Right? Understanding the law of logic right, is transtemporal, transspatial, translinguistic. Do, do you see the point there? Okay. For this reason, people in the scholastic tradition sort of put their foot down when you get to human reason. They say, yeah, something that really understands a concept like a law of logic has, there's an effect of that understanding, the concept, that has this far reach that goes beyond what physical causality does. Um, That is not to say there isn't a brain process correlated with my doing that. There is. If we don't know what it is, we will. All right? The problem, though, is there just doesn't seem to be a way to account for the content of my understanding of the law of logic in terms of that brain process. Okay. So when I'm reasoning deductively like that, it seems as if I'm subject to two parallel, completely incommensurable types of explanations. The explanation in terms of the law of logic and the explanation in terms of the physical processes. And the one does not shed any other light on the other. Okay. All right. I don't think I can defend absolutely that, therefore, proves, right, uh, the human soul is separable from the matter. Okay. I think that is interesting enough to say I'm not crazy to think that. Do you see my point? Okay. 
it seems to me that's not that we just don't know how that could work out, such that a physical thing, a finite thing, could have infinite effect. It seems to me to be in principle there could be no account of that. Okay. All right. So I draw a weaker conclusion than really what Aquinas or Aristotle do. They think, boom, we can demonstrate this. All right. I think it's it is mysterious enough to say. In principle, this is beyond our can, right? And you would not be crazy to think that, that there's a capacity human beings have, right, that isn't just a straightforwardly physical capacity. Okay. And if that's the case, yeah, then it seems there's something in our, in our constituents, right, that is not exhausted by our physical being, and there's no reason to think that we're utterly destroyed by our death. Okay. Now, I think to get me back in the relevant sense, you got to get a body back. Okay. But I, I think because of this, to say that I'm, my, I'm, my death entails my utter destruction, I don't think that's been shown. I don't think it can be shown. And you know, I want to see, I want to note that I don't think this in any way steps on any possible discovery of the neurosciences because it, it's per, I, I'm not denying I would expect that my ability to do this capacity is always wrapped up with a process in my brain. It's just that there's nothing in neurological processes that can explain that transtemporal, transspatial applicability of my concepts. So that is what I have for you.